Hello and welcome to the Hole in My Heart podcast. This is episode 57, the whys behind pornography addiction. Yes, and that is not whys as in (laughs) W-I-S-E, but the W-H-Y-S. So we're going to look at behind... well, the wise behind pornography addiction, exactly as the title says. <laughs> but my name is Lori Krieg, and we're coming at you from Grand Rapids, Michigan. And I'm the executive director of Hole in My Heart Ministries. And we seek to speak at the, the intersection between the gospel and sexuality. And we love doing this podcast. And I am here with my husband, Matt Krieg, who's a licensed therapist. Hello. I feel like there should be some sort of other like random factoid about random you factoid. and Star I, Wars aficionado. Star Wars yes. and Argyle collector. <laughs> yeah, he is wearing Argyle. I think that, again, that's the, you look in the mirror that, and you're like. That is the therapist look. Yeah. yeah mm-hmm. It's your superpower. <laughs> as well as radio host extraordinaire. Oh my. And puzzle builder of Star Wars <laughs> yes. things too. We got that for your birthday. Yes. How's that working out for you? Um, it's just waiting for me to have a free Saturday. <laughs> to build <laughs> yes. a model of the Millennium Which Falcon. Th- and R2-D2. And R2. And I think We're this so Saturday is the day. Okay, I can't yes. wait to see. Yep. But we have a great episode for you today with Jay Stringer. Jay is a licensed mental health counselor and ordained minister who wrote the recently released amazing book, Unwanted is what it's called. You want it, this book, even though it's called Unwanted. And it's called How Sexual Brokenness Reveals Our Way to Healing. Welcome, Jay. Thank you so much for having me on the show. It is an honor and a thrill to be here. We're so glad to hear you. And you're coming from Seattle. You're talking to us through the old Skype line. Seattle, Washington. Is it raining per usual? No, it is beautiful right now. Uh, All of the leaves are turning, a little bit of sunshine in the sky, but tomorrow that will all change. Uh, I think we we get about a quarter of an inch or a half an inch of rain. Oh, my word. So we are about to head into our very, very miserable season. Oh, man. Well, it's good. There's therapists like you (laughs) all around. (laughs) Uh, Indeed. Speaking of therapists, your book was so good. I really just so enjoyed it. And um, Dan Allender, which if any of you guys study shame or work on uh, sexual brokenness or specifically sexual abuse, he is kind of the authority, the Christian authority on that. But he said of your book, Without Rival, the best book on broken sexuality I have ever read. Which, I mean, that's got to feel a little bit good to hear that. Was I know. Great? Come on. I was not <laughs> expecting. I was like, did he really just say that about my book? Yeah. That is a remarkable endorsement. Seriously. Yeah. So, I couldn't believe yeah. that. Well, I really want to dissect the entire book with you, but we only have 45 minutes. So we're not going to focus on all of broken sexuality, uh, but we are going to focus on pornography addiction and on some of the whys behind it, which really opened up my eyes. And I can't wait for Mm. especially Steve and Matt, who have journeyed through some of this. And we've been honest about that on this podcast just Mm -hmm. to hear some of your thoughts. But yes, before we do that, we're going to get into the question of the week uh, from last week, which was which of your personality traits would you like to change or which took you like a minute slash a year to accept? Um, Jay, we'll start with you because you're new. <laughs> so go to town. Did my wife email you to have you asked that question? No, no. <laughs> Um, so we were, my wife and I were actually in Phoenix this weekend, our full first solo trip away from our kids on an airplane since uh, they were born. And so we were talking about some, like, uh, this is going to make us sound like we talk about this stuff all the time. We don't, but we were talking about kind of depth psychology. She's also a therapist. And so Mm -hmm. we were staying at this, uh, hotel that had a lazy river on it. And so this lazy river is about like 30 minutes long. You sit on a float, drink a beer, go around. And she was like saying, we want, I just want to, I want you to observe what happens to your kind of internal world, what happens in the river around you over these next 30 minutes. And so essentially, (laughs) essentially, 
you know, we're floating along, drinking a beer. It's lovely. And then all of a sudden, all these children and adolescents start coming and they start being all noisy, splashing water. I'm like, you are interrupting me. And then all these other people come along and they're either going too fast or too slow. And I mean, I just became so, so irritated at the end of this lazy river ride. And part of the reflection back was just like, I see almost everything as a type of obstruction. Uh, And so that's, that's something of... Um, I think just something that I'm consistently trying to address of because I see a lot and feel a lot and I'm pretty sensitive overall, Hmm. that also has a shadow side of just I find myself fairly irritated when things don't go as I want them to go. So I think that that's what I'm trying to sort out is how do I be kind of embrace that there's a dignity to sensitivity and to understanding, but Hmm. there is a shadow side to that that uh, is a pretty irritable self in the midst oh, yeah. of there too. So, uh, oh, thank you. That's, but it is a funny stark yeah. story. Yeah. It sounds like when yes. Matt hangs out with this other. I just want to be on a river in the sun in Phoenix <laughs> alone and, and not be in a, alone. Yes. Oh. And then we there was one point in the river where you go underneath this bridge. It's like this beautiful safe haven away from the sun. There was no kids around. And then I was like, this is this is exactly what I wanted the river to be. And then. You go about like another 30 seconds and then you're in some strange Western kitsch town that they've constructed. <laughs> like, what What just happened? Just totally ruined the vibe. Oh, my word. How about you, Matt? Um, well, I so so personally, I I would love if I could multitask better. Because I am, I am terrible at multitasking. I become hyper focused on things and can just like live in them for a long time. And um, I mean, hence why when you're asking me if I'm like having read over the podcast notes yes. and everything, and I'm like, oh yeah, no, I had time for it, but I didn't because I was doing other things and I was working on client stuff, and and so I think it would be nice if there was a little bit more balance in in my ability to to juggle, to jump between multiple things and change pace more quickly. I do love that about you in some ways, because when you're with our daughters, for example, you're very present, like you're with them. So I actually, that's something I admire about you, but I can see you maybe wanting to multitask yeah, I mean, it's, a little better. It's not, it's not good when I, you know, haven't checked my email for four days and someone has reached out to get help yeah. for something. And I'm like, Sorry, oh shoot, people. I was, I was with my family <laughs> yeah, and I was with my daughters for Sunday and yeah. <laughs> sorry, yeah. you know? And so, yeah, I, I definitely wish I could get better at it. And then as far as uh, a listener response, I really appreciated what Kylie said. She said that she is quick to get angry at someone for doing something that she has done. For example, getting mad at a driver that cut me off when she herself has cut people off too. Mm-hmm. And that also kind of hits home for me. Because I, I have a, a deep desire for lyrics to be sung correctly, <laughs> <laughs> yet I am the chief among people who will usurp songs and insert my own lyrics for my own personal pleasure. And I don't know what that's about, but I apologize to anyone who has heard me do that and also heard me get mad at them for not saying the lyrics right. Our four-year-old was singing a song wrong, and he's like, it's really bugging me. And I'm like, she's... Four. <laughs> yeah, it runs deep. Steve? Uh, well, I can relate to that, not being a multitasker. Um, I This is personality traits, right? Not yeah. character flaws. So we're I mean, not going to talk whatevs. about my, yeah. I mean, Enneagram 9, so lazy, but we'll we'll talk about that in a different <laughs> We'll make episode. peace with that. Yes, right, right. Yes. I make too much peace with my laziness. But uh, no, I, I really uh, kind of related to what Les said. Uh, Les said, I wish I wasn't such an introvert at social gatherings. I want to be more social, jumping into conversations, easily making friends. But instead, typically, I become a wallflower shy and just observe and hope that a friend shows up or someone will just come talk to me. Sometimes I can fake it till I make it, but that's not common. This was something that made youth group at church really hard for me. Slap on the fact that I was also processing my sexuality and it was the perfect storm. I would be excited every Wednesday night because I was going to make a friend and I was going to chat and I was going to show my personality. But every Wednesday night on the way home, I just cried over the fact that I failed again. 
People smarter and wiser than me have encouraged me in this and have planted nuggets of truth that my personality is just as God designed it. And while being extroverted is something I wish I was, I also know that being more quiet and saying saying only what you mean can also be a good thing. Totally. That was really well thought out, Les. Yeah. And it actually helped me because I struggled right like the same way. Yeah. Um, and that's just a good reminder. I love it. I appreciated Dave's perspective. There's a lot that were similar to that introvert, extrovert Mm. one, or just being like, I'm a people pleaser, just not being grateful for how God made you that way. But Dave said, I'm a people pleaser working. I'm working to become a people lover instead, Mm. which sometimes means setting boundaries, confronting and love and saying, no, I'm a work in progress. So I find, you know, we talk about how we have people over to our house every week. We do family dinner Um, And I was thinking how challenging that is. Like left to myself, I'd like to be by myself. I'm not naturally someone, you know, those people who are just like, I just love a good hang, like all the time, hang, hang, hang. And with whomever I'm, I'm similar to you. Uh, Run away from those people. (laughs) Yes, I know. I'm so driven. I'm so driven and I just get focused and I just, I don't know. So I, I really wish that I wanted to be naturally with people more. This is terrible when I'm working on it. And I put myself in scenarios that challenge me. So there it is. It's time for Goofball Island. And you know, the vehicle we're going to take here this time is a high five. Yeah. Ooh, it kind of stinks. So we did a similar one with the giant yes. recently. And I had no idea why I had a giant carry us to Fall Island. I don't know what was going on in my head. High five makes more sense because we're playing the same game, but it's yeah. like every five years. Also, hey, remember how a high five isn't a vehicle? So <laughs> I don't know. Unless it's a magical There's... teleporting What's high a five? five. What's something with five? Oh, maybe like a five wheeler? A fifth wheel? A fifth wheel. Too late. The high five already delivered us. I'm just <laughs> next, reminding us okay, all. Okay, the next time we play this game... <laughs> A fifth wheel. A fifth wheel. Well, That's uh-huh. an RV thing. Yeah, yeah. Okay, good. Back to you, Jay. Sorry, we're figuring out our issues in so many ways. Okay, so we're going to ask you some questions about your life to get to know you a little bit better. And we're just going to do starting at age zero. And we're going to end up at age 25 when your brain is fully developed. Hopefully. Nice. Okay, so where were you born? And what is the crazy story of your birth? So this is age zero. What birth and if I don't know, doesn't everyone have a crazy birth story or at least something? I was born uh, in Willingboro, New Jersey, just on the other side of the river from Philadelphia while my dad was in seminary. Um, okay. And I have not, I, I need to ask them if there is a crazy story associated with my birth. Okay. All I have heard is that I had very large shoulders. <laughs> <laughs> Mommy would remember that. that yes. Was, <laughs> yes. That's exactly. good. That'll pass. <laughs> All right. What was your biggest fear at age five? Uh, I would probably say being left in a grocery store. I I have these, I grew up on a, uh, air force base Mm. and, uh, I, we lived in Washington, DC and I know right around age five, I was left in the Smithsonian, like lost (gasps) by my uncle. And I eventually, as the story goes, found a security guard uh, and then I can remember from that day forward, just like always wanting to be really aware of where my mom was and just Aww. having like those limbic freak out moments of where's my mom? I'm in a grocery store. I can't find her. Is she going to be there after practice? So there was a lot of fear of being left at five. That's super traumatic. Oh, that's yeah. legit fear. All right. At age 10, what was your favorite TV show? <laughs> uh so at age 10, my I would say like the worst years of my life were between fifth grade and eighth grade. Oh. This is age 10 is right in the middle of that. Yeah. And uh, <clears throat> on Saturday evenings, I had almost no friends during those ages. So I can remember Saturday evening, there was like a whole lineup of you would watch. I would watch Cops. Oh, by. No. Uh, <laughs> Um, like the, the violent bad boys, bad boys. Yeah, yes. bad boys yes. TV show. It followed like... by America's Most Wanted, oh, followed no. by changing to CBS to go to Walker, Texas Rangers. Oh, there so, you go. Oh, yeah. that'll that, cleanse that, the palate. Right. Yes, yeah. that was my guys. Saturday night from probably fifth grade through maybe I got my driver's license at 16. Wait, so, why were those the six... worst years? 
Uh, just my own trauma, bullying. Uh, a lot of the most difficult years in my family were definitely during those years. So mm-hmm. it was it was hell on earth. Mm. Oh well, maybe yeah. we'll get more into that. What were you gonna ask? Well, about? I was I was gonna say this is Goofball Island. So no, stop. Knowing that you have an affinity for Walker, Texas Ranger, oh. <laughs> do you also have a favorite Chuck Norris fact? <laughs> I don't. Go ahead, Matt. Um, I I forget all of those jokes about Chuck Norris. Yeah. Um, okay. Matt I just doesn't. I'm going to like the total gym right now. <laughs> so, <laughs> But I know there are a lot of great Chuck Norris jokes. I just can't recall any of them right now. Yeah, the only one I can think of like right now is that when Chuck Norris does push-ups, he's actually pushing the earth down. Hey, <laughs> <Ew. laughs> Chuck Norris jokes. <laughs> All right. At age 20, what was your favorite relaxing activity? What would reset you? Oh, my goodness. I did not relax well. Uh, I would say probably General So's chicken. Ooh, nice. Oh, yeah. man. That was like I would get done with classes. That was probably my junior year of college, get done on Thursday nights and then swing by the Chinese joint to get General So's. Nice. And that was kind of the peak of relaxation for me. I yeah, love unfortunately. it. Uh, yeah. So I can't count. So we forgot to do age 15. What was your dream yes. job at 15? Uh, dream job at 15. Uh, so I, my, my mom is the oldest of seven. So I have four uncles, three aunts or two aunts. Uh, and almost all of my uncles, I believe were in the air force at one point. And then many of them went into kind of Delta team, special forces, uh, reconnaissance work of stuff that they would, uh, anything that became declassified, they could tell us stories. So I grew up, especially right around those years, hearing these stories from all around the world of how my uncles were around the fastest boat, the fastest communication, uh, just a lot of the stuff that became declassified military history was just phenomenal to listen to. So being a very high introvert, um, there was something about being kind of like some SEAL team member or something at 15 that I always thought that would be an amazing job to have no one know where you're at at any time and yet doing something that was shaping history. Yeah. So yeah. much like Chuck yeah. Morris. Yes. <laughs> I know. Uh, and if you know me since my brain is fully developed, I have gone away from television and military <laughs> reconnaissance <Yeah>. fascination. <laughs> so speaking of that fully developed brain at 25, how developed was it? Yes, that is my question. Oh my question. goodness, not developed. <laughs> I still feel like it's it's developing. But I mean, I, I think there was like a, I felt a radical shift around 30 in terms of uh, just how escalated I could get um, mm. things that I felt like more peace about who I was as a person. But mm. I mean, I think that that's so much of what we see in the world today is so much of the just even issues around the Me Too culture, sexual assault, drinking, uh, so much of what happens in our world with regard to those issues happens, you know, right around puberty, adolescence to 26, when the brain is very much developing. So, yeah. I mean, I think mine was not very developed. And I think part of what we're seeing culturally as well is uh, we are not preparing men and women to be in our bodies and in our brains very well hmm. um, during some of the most significant years of our life. So, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Well, I'm looking forward to getting into more of that right now at the heart of the matter. So, Jay, the reason that we do this podcast is to talk about how the gospel is good news for everybody every day. And so we ask every guest who comes on to share uh, how and when was the gospel first good news for you and how is it still? Uh, So I grew up as a pastor's kid. Um, And so, so much of what I would say a lot of my faith journey was, was kind of two-stepping between being a pretty faithful, good kid, uh, and then also kind of feeling like I had this secretive dimension of my life. Um, And so, that could be related to not only my own pornography involvement, but also uh, whenever women would find life outside of me, I would often feel a lot of the life leave me and become pretty angry and escalated. Uh, And so, Um, I would say that there are different points within college and grad school where 
uh, just a lot of the debris of my relational life uh, was something that I really needed to see and name for the first time. And that was just a really humbling thing to get a sense of so much of the Christian life that I had developed was I could talk about something that was difficult or traumatic that had happened to me as long as I had some, in some ways, a dogmatic story of redemption to follow. Like I could mm. say, I was really sad in middle school, but then that was also the context that I knew the gospel for the first time. And kind of looking out the window on a school bus after I had just been bullied and called donut and having a sense of the spirit of God with me. So I could I could tell something of that story, but I could never really enter the heartache of that boy on the bus uh, and some of the trauma that he knew. And so I think it was a lot of what I went through in my early 20s. Uh, that really gave me a sense of uh, there's not just something about trauma that has happened to me. There's also something about my own brokenness that's now impacting the lives of those around me. Mm. And that was just a really significant period of saying, I, I'm not whole. Um, and as my kind of professor, Dan Allender, said, he said something along the lines of, if you name resurrection without first articulating and entering death, you trivialize something of the cross. And so during, you know, my uh, really formative theological years, I was into just really dogmatic reformed theology, the deader, the better. Hmm. Uh, we were in small groups that tried to read all of Luther, Calvin, Edwards, um, wow. and just having like a profound sense that I did not know how to really connect honestly uh, to a lot of the brokenness in my own life and a lot of the relational debris. So wow. I would say it was just a lot of the context of my own failure and heartache that really helped me to understand the gospel. So gorgeous, uh, which is so strange that we can use words like that when talking about such pain and suffering, but just when you see mm -hmm. that light and honest light, like not what you said, how, okay, yes, I was bullied, but I am a champion. Uh, but to honestly yes. reflect is just so beautiful. And I'm, I'm guessing, uh, just from pieces of your book and some of what you just shared, that the ongoing good news of the gospel probably continues this conversation. Is that accurate? Yes, absolutely. Yep. I mean, I, I, there's something about the, it's not that the gospel has changed, uh, it, but I, I think it's it's very much like that multi, like a diamond where at different periods of my life, I'm staring at one of the most beautiful pieces of like that God could actually be for me at the height mm. of my brokenness. Mm. Um, that, that, that Jesus entering the sarks, basically the New Testament word for the flesh that can be made killable, that like, what am I? to do with a God who incarnates God's own self into the heartache, into the piss, into the just the crap of what I have lived through um, and wants to offer his body and his blood to me at the height of my brokenness. That was such a profound message to me in the midst of my 20s. And it's not that that hasn't changed, but now that I am a father um, and interact with some of the suffering of my own kids and health issues, um, there, there's still something of that, that message that I would say is shifting of, that, that God is very much for me uh, and pursues my life with a type of love and curiosity um, about who I'm becoming. So I, I think that just different events that I go through are very much shaping my understanding of the gospel. That's just, again, gorgeous. So this book you wrote helped me so much to, to understand a deeper level of um, people who wrestle with unwanted sexual behavior. And so I wrestle with my own version of unwanted sexual behavior, just sexual brokenness. And But I have had... Um, I've had a difficult time always understanding the mind and the heart behind specifically men who wrestle with pornography addiction. And I have talked about on this podcast, just some of my own hypocrisy and how I can give women a lot of grace. Cause I'm like, well, they're emotional and I can understand some of the whys, but for men, I've had this bias. And so I've been really studying it and just walking with Matt and walking with other men who've wrestled with understanding the heart behind it. But your, your book helped to clear off another layer for me of some of the why. So wise. glad to hear. Yeah, thank you. And so I'd really recommend it, you know, to 
wives and husbands, if your spouse uh, who's wrestling with pornography addiction, I think it would really help. But then if you yourself, it's such a graceful tone and just helps to, to walk you through your wrestling with unwanted sexual behavior. So why did you write it, Jay? Why did you see a need for this specific book? Where does it where does it reach that you didn't see books on on this specific piece? Yes. Yeah, so as a therapist, men and women were arriving in my office with almost no understanding of what freedom from unwanted sexual behavior was all about. So if they grew up in the, you know, purity movement or um, mm. had ever read some of the more, I would just, let's just call them infamous books around the topic, yeah. uh, they were encouraged to bounce their eyes, uh, to slap a rubber band around their wrist in the midst of having a lustful thought, mm. uh, maybe in some ways get uh, accountability devices installed on their computer monitoring devices. And yet what I began to hear was that these things actually failed to provide people to f- the freedom that they were desiring. Uh, at the same time, People more that were coming from a more liberal approach were finding that they kind of made sexual shame the issue. And if they could just uh, remove the shame and stigma associated with their sexual choices, then they could get people into freedom. Mm. And yet that didn't tend to work either. And so uh, as one of my clients said to me recently, he said, Jay, when I've been having the same conversation with my accountability partner for 15 years, something <laughs> isn't working. Yeah. And so most of the predominant approaches out there um, are all very lust-centered. Mm-hmm. And again, I would just call that very antiquated language that's not addressing the robustness of what's happening to men and women in pornography. Mm-hmm. And so we can't transform something that we don't actually have any language to name that it even exists outside of lust. And so mm-hmm. as a minister, as a therapist, uh, one of the things that I think we can do to be most faithful to the human heart is to ask the human heart questions. Um, So when God interacts with Adam after he's just eaten the fruit, God doesn't say, Adam, stop hiding. Like, don't do that anymore. Try and like bounce your eyes away from that apple next time you see it. (laughs) God's saying like, what what have you done? Um, Where are you? And so we see this again with Hagar, who's just been immensely traumatized by the first family of the faith. She hits the road into the desert where she's going to die. And the angel of the Lord appears to her and says, Hagar, where do you come from and where are you going? And so to me, this is the best approach that we can take to the human heart, to sexual brokenness, is Mm -hmm. to really invite people into a sense of the curiosity of God for their life. So instead of it being just stop, it's why, why is it that every single night after your wife declines intimacy with you, you find yourself using pornography? Or why is it in the midst of a lot of like the most difficult moments of your life, uh, does this type of pornography actually appeal to you? So I think once we get into the particulars of the sexual behavior, uh, we will find clues to the freedom that we're seeking. And so that's what Uh, I did in this book, Unwanted, was to really get a sense of, I asked about 3,800 men and women to basically tell me their story about where they come from and what types of sexual brokenness they found themselves involved in. So we asked about family of origin, your relationship with mom, dad, uh, trauma, sexual abuse, uh, and then some of the present day difficulties like depression, anxiety. Uh, lack of purpose. And then we wanted to see how does one's life story go on to shape the specifics of the sexual behavior and fantasies that they pursue. And after you get about 4,000 people that fill this thing out, there's just amazing patterns that begin to emerge in the data. Which one of those you said was dysfunctional family systems. And so 77% of those who struggle with sexual addiction report coming from a rigid family and 87% report coming from a disengaged family. What what's that mean and why is that important? Sure. So that's actually Patrick Carnes's research uh, from his, I believe that's in Out of the Shadows. Yep. Uh, and one of the things I think we have to talk about when we say pornography is 
if you were to just imagine uh, two rivers coming together, where those two rivers come together is is basically the confluence or the conflux. And that's where the current of the river is going to be the strongest. Hmm. And so part of what I would say is happening in pornography is that we have something called lust and we have something called anger or power, entitlement, whatever you want to label that other that second river. And what's happening in pornography is not just escape. It's not just lust. It's not just some sense of, I want to get rid of all my problems. There's also a type of anger. There's a type of power that says, give me a world where everything is under my control, that Mm -hmm. there's no failure, that there's the ability to get what I want when I want it. Um, And it's really in that intersection that so much of our lust and our anger is playing out. So I say that just because if we go back then into rigid and disengaged family systems, I would say that a rigid family system is basically, this is like the classic family that's very authoritarian, very rigid, uh, lots of rules and regulations. So if you get a bad grade on a report card, you could be grounded, you could be spanked for that. Uh, and what happens in this type of family is you're you're watching the hypocrisy of your family. So you're watching your dad be a deacon, an elder at the church or on some board. And yet when he comes home, he's completely checked out. Or if you get on his bad side, he'll he'll shame your mom. He'll try and intimidate you. And so when you grow up in this type of family system, the response to that is actually a really healthy human emotion, which is anger of I don't, this is not the way that life is supposed to be. And so when we grow up in rigid families, we feel anger. The other type of family system is disengaged. And this is the type of family that uh, maybe it's a single parent family. Maybe it's something that uh, they are a latchkey kid. Um, They're left home quite a bit. And so these are the men and women that often go through life roaming, kind of scanning the world to see if someone will actually love them, if Mm. someone will be attuned to them. And so what I would say that the seeds in that type of family system are lust. And so we we want belonging, we want to be included, we want to know that someone will actually pursue us when we're feeling heartbroken. And what our family system script told us is that no one will actually be around for you. And so what you need to do is actually begin to maneuver your way through life in such a way that you can find something of that love, something of that oxytocin, something of that affection and that gaze that you've been missing. Mm -hmm. And so what ends up happening to a lot of like adolescents is that pornography actually gives them a place Uh, to actually play out so many of those lust and anger themes of there's something about the pleasure, the arousal associated with uh, dopamine, ejaculation, masturbation, pornography that gives us a sense of escape, uh, gives us a sense of uh, connection even to a device or to a magazine. But then it's also something where we can begin to play out something of our own anger about life not working out the way that it's supposed to. Um, because then we can take all of our anger, we can take all of our disappointment and our mom and our dad and our friends and actually play out needing to see someone else be subordinate or to serve us in the midst of what we're experiencing. Mm. Wow. Mm-hmm. That I think people are going to need to listen to a couple times and or get the book because <laughs> yeah. it's worth it because uh, you dive really deeply into that and give some really helpful stories, which, again, just help me to be like, oh, OK, another layer torn off so I can help. I can understand the heart and the mind and the history behind people that I love and care about. So abandonment plays into that. And this, I just keep thinking about these statistics about how few people are really told a really like a good, healthy sex talk. And so men and women who struggled with unwanted sexual behavior had parents who were either silent or unhelpful about conversations related to sex. And so I'm going to throw a few stats at y'all, but these are important. 50% of moms did not talk to them about sex at all. 60% of dads did not talk to those who struggled with unwanted sexual behavior. Dads didn't talk to them about sex at all. Only 8% had genuinely helpful conversations with mom and only 5% had genuinely helpful conversations with dad. Why are these conversations and why are these statistics so alarming? I know. Isn't that just astounding? I mean, every time I see that, I'm like, what? 8 and 5%. Yeah. 
Yeah. And so, I mean, I think part of what we have to begin to name is when we don't talk about one of the most beautiful and sacred dimensions of who we are, what ends up happening is people begin to associate shame with that. And Mm -hmm. so just because your family didn't talk about sex, I would say that that's actually saying something about sex. (laughs) Um, So -hmm. I think we have to begin to say that uh, whether it was the sex talk, which we know from the research, it, those are not terribly helpful either. Some of the best research out there would say don't have one 100-minute conversation with your kids about sex. Have 100 one-minute conversations with mm-hmm. them about sex. So it's it's just woven into kind of day-to-day life of this is what our bodies are. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you're going to be 13, 14, 15 years old. Do you know what testosterone is going to be unleashed in your body that you're going to feel sexual about anything and everything. Mm -hmm. So we need to begin to prepare people and especially our kids so much better than we have up until this point. And so if we're not talking about it and then we go through adolescence and we feel arousal, we discover our penis or our clitoris, and yet no one is actually naming that those parts of our body exist until some wedding day, Mm -hmm. um, we're going to begin to associate that silence with a type of shame that it's not actually helpful or effective to talk about this. And when things go into secret and they go underground, uh, they can't mature. And so, I mean, that's so much of what we see, I think, playing out culturally, especially in Christian circles, is that uh, if we've had no language to talk about our sexuality, how is it possible that we can really allow this beautiful dimension of our life to be understood, to be matured? Because most of us are very committed to silence with Mm. it, when the reality is so many of us are struggling with sexual brokenness, be that the use of pornography, Uh, A lot of fantasies about affairs, about a third of all marriages will encounter them. Mm -hmm. So again, we need to begin to break some of the silence up to begin to say, because we are made in God's image, we are sexual, and that is a beautiful, stunning thing. And yet, because evil cannot destroy the glory and goodness of God, evil will then go after that which most reflects God's glory and Mm. image, which is, of course, our sexuality. So the way that evil works is to steal, to kill, to destroy, and also create homes with profound amounts of silence around our created goodness. I'm like saying prayers in my own heart, like, Mm. God help me as we raise our daughters uh, just to do that well. And I appreciate that. The whole, the whole language around it and how can we have those 101-minute conversations and, and how God, he designed this beautiful thing. And so, of course, the enemy wants to destroy it. Yeah, well, and, yes. I, and I think that, that that family response, you can also see that reflected in, in the church's response, where the only places where, where sex or pornography or anything is talked about is if you have your particular men's group or you have your particular group that's, that's there to talk about sex or LGBT issues or or whatever. And it's like, whenever anyone is every time we've spoken at a church, they've always put this, uh, like the the disclaimer in the bulletin to let Mm -hmm. parents know like, Hey, your kids might not want to listen to this one. Mm -hmm. And, and I don't know if it's like intentional, obviously that putting it in there is intentional because, you know, parents need to be aware of what's going to be happening. But there's, there is this sense. It's almost like this unspoken sense of, we're going to talk about something shameful mm. and, and then the, that causes people to either tune out or be fearful of what's going to be, what's going to be said. So well said. Yep. And then if you are struggling, the meeting is in the basement or Absolutely. the meeting yes. is kind of like some <laughs> out in portable C. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, you talk about six core experiences of unwanted sexual behavior. And, and one of them is futility, which I thought was very uh, powerful because we see this often in people we're walking with. And Matt, I think you've named this quite often. And what you said is the greater a man's futility or lack of purpose, the more likely he was to increase his pornography use. In fact, men were seven times more likely to escalate their pornography use if they lacked purpose in their lives. And then you give this really interesting um, scenario that happened during the Warriors and Cavaliers game. Uh-huh. Can you talk about that? Isn't it fascinating? Yeah. yeah. So there, there's actually, there's some research out there that basically says that pornography may be the best metric that we have for cultural attention. So you can actually tell 
what we're doing as a society based on how many people are on pornography in any given city. So one of the leading porn sites actually tracks all the metrics of their of people's porn use. And one of the things that they found during the 2017 finals between the Warriors and the Cavaliers was that uh, pornography was down uh, by a couple percentage points in both Cleveland and in the Bay Area. So I think there was at one point uh, in Cleveland, it's down about negative 6%. Uh, but then when it becomes really, really clear that Cleveland is about to lose the game and therefore the NBA Finals, Pornography increases by about 34% to plus 28% after the game is over. And so uh, one of the things that we're finding is that you can actually measure cultural attention based on uh, porn use in our world today. So I, I like to factor a lot of this into... Just even the the average American watches about four and a half hours of television a day. And so I think part of the thing that pornography, television, Netflix is revealing to us is that we are struggling uh, immensely with a type of futility in our life that we don't know who we are. We don't know what we actually want to get out of this life. And maybe we have some goals and aspirations, but at the end of the day, we know that it takes so much work just to be able to get there. There's going to be a better book written on sexuality. There's going to be a more successful podcast. Mm -hmm. And so after you go back to that sense of what do I do with this sense of futility in my life, um, most of us don't have a great answer. And Mm -hmm. so one of the things that happens for men is that if you're dealing with futility and a lack of purpose, you will increase your involvement in pornography by a factor of seven. So one of the ways that I think about this is even like the language that Genesis 3 uses for the curse for a man is basically thorns and thistles, uh, that every single thing that a man does is eventually going to return back to dust. And Mm. so I think especially as men and the, the curse of what it means to be a man is that everything I do is gonna be full of kind of sweat. It's going to be full of futility. And one of the reasons why pornography becomes appealing is that it creates this arena of life where there's nothing else required of me. I can get exactly what I want when I want it. I can put in any search. I can look up any celebrity. I can look up anything that I desire. And that thing will be there ready on demand to serve me. And there is nothing like that on the planet. And so I think that that's part of what this whole kind of issue of pornography is revealing is that most of us as men have, and I would say women as well, we have so many squatters that are showing up in our life because there's an unlived house. There's, there's not a, there's not a sense of vitality and purpose within us. Mm -hmm. And so if that's an empty hollow house, there are going to be squatters in the, in the form of alcohol, in the form of television, in the form of pornography. And again, I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with alcohol or, television, but that that profound sense of if I am empty, empty inside, something is inevitably going to fill that space that at the end of the day doesn't bear beauty or honor. Yeah. So what can we do, Jay? We're sitting here feeling futile. Uh, What would you say if someone was listening, they're like, ugh, like they're just getting hit on all sides and recognizing some connections and wondering about, you know, something from their childhood. And maybe that's why, like, what can what can we do today? Yeah. So, I mean, I, a couple things. I, one of the primary features of this book is to really invite people to listen to their lust. Uh, and what that means is that all of us have, in some ways, an arousal template of things that we find are sexually stimulating to us. And so one of the things in the research that we did was Uh, looked at what are some of the predominant sexual fantasies that men and women have. And one of the main ones for men had to do with uh, wanting to see a college student, a teenager, someone that was younger than them, someone with uh, a race that suggested to them some level of subservience. And so we wanted to know if that was your sexual fantasy, what did that actually say about you? And what we found was that these men were much more likely to have a strict father Uh, They were dealing with high levels of futility in life, 
and they uh, had high levels of shame. And so I think part of the writing on the wall is that if we don't know how to transform some of the most difficult moments of our life, some of the harm that we've experienced, one of the things that happens to men is that we will desire power over women because we don't, we are not actually addressing some of the pain and futility within. And so I think wow. part of the reflection back to us uh, it is one of my favorite quotes is from this guy named Father Richard Rohr. And he says, the pain we do not transform, we transmit. Yeah. Always someone else has to suffer because I don't know how to. Mm-hmm. And so to me, that's one of the big things that we need, especially as men to do, is to turn towards our unwanted sexual behavior and recognize that there's a lot of pain, uh, a lot of harm, and a lot of entitlement that that reveals. And we need to be able to have the integrity to confront and to regulate our own emotions and disappointments and marriage and life uh, without sexualizing them, without creating debris in our marriages, without creating uh, just a demand for the subordination and objectification of women. Because if we're not attuned to our own hearts and our own story, Uh, we're inevitably going to drift into a type of sexual story uh, that actually wants someone else to be subordinate to us. So the first thing I'd say is just we need to listen to our lust and see what that actually says about us. And the second thing I would say is that we need to really begin to turn towards our shame. Uh, One of the things that we found in the research as well is that if you actually pursued someone to talk to, you would see a 22% reduction in unwanted sexual behavior. Now, that was really effective for some people, but it often uh, still put them in the same ruts of, I'm pursuing accountability, and yet uh, I'm still struggling. And so I think part of what we have to recognize is that shame is not just something uh, that we feel in response to our unwanted sexual behavior. Our shame about who we are and what we've chosen is actually something that also drives us to it. Mm-hmm. Um, so if I'm feeling like, you know, and what I talked about with General So's, I have nothing against General So's chicken. Mm-hmm. Uh, but for me, at that point in life, I uh, was an obese, I would say more obese college student. Uh, and I did not like my life. I hated my body during those years. I hated uh, the life that I was living. Um, and I felt so much shame about who I was in the way that I would pursue food, pornography during that time actually reinforced the judgments that I was holding about myself. And so to me, that was a really significant place of change that happened to me. Uh, Brian moving out to Seattle was why why is it that most of my unwanted behaviors actually just reinforce the core beliefs that I have about who I am? Mm-hmm. And so to that's that was a really significant season of life of to not just get a sense of the pain um, and not just get a sense of how my story was increasing it, but to be able to have the integrity in the moment to say, I don't like who I am. I'm not fond of Uh, this life, this body that I've been given. And I'm very, very susceptible right now to begin to pursue any type of behavior that will actually just convince me that that's exactly who I am. Mm -hmm. Um, And so there was a lot of change, I would say, in my life when I began to learn how to regulate disappointment, uh, to bring kindness and soothing in the form of a bath, in the form of even essential oils that would actually bring smell and scent to me. Uh, So I I think part of the solution is that we don't need to become less sexual or sensual. We actually need to begin to pursue behaviors and activities that bring our body more alive. And if we can do that, that means that we are being kind to ourselves. And so that's the language that Romans 2.4 uses is, It is the kindness of God that leads to change. Um, And so if we're really wanting change, what does it mean to not condemn ourselves for our unwanted sexual behavior, to not hate ourselves for our sexual story, but to actually be kind about uh, how it in some ways makes a lot of sense given the life that we've had? And then how do we begin to pursue self-soothing in a way that isn't about dissociating, isn't about consuming or using another person in our fantasy life. Mm -hmm. 
Oh, Jay, this is so beautiful. I just cannot wait to to share this episode with the world. And everyone, really, please go read this book. It's an it's an easy read, but so so interesting. And I think it's beneficial if you know someone who's wrestling with pornography addiction in particular. But if you yourself are as well, it the tone that you just heard and you've been hearing in Jay's voice throughout this whole podcast is the tone of the book. It's not like. Turner Burn, which you can't, I don't know if anyone would think it would be like that after hearing him, but it is that be kind to yourself. Yes. Do the hard digging research inside your soul. But uh, in the end, like let's, let's bring it to Jesus who honestly, that's why we love him. Isn't it? Is his kindness in the midst of suffering, mm-hmm. even suffering we've caused ourselves. So beautiful. So Jay, thanks so much for so being awesome. on this podcast with us. Thank you so much uh, for having me. It's such a, just so grateful to be on a podcast with people so open, vulnerable with your own stories Mm -hmm. and really just committed to changing that culture of silence and that culture of turn and burn. But to say our sexual brokenness is one of the primary ways that God is going to bring about the redemption that Mm -hmm. all of us really long for, for our lives. Mm -hmm. So thank you for the work that you, you three are so committed to. Well, it's, it's uh, I say often, a terrible joy. But honestly, today, it just feels like a joy. Mm, yeah. So thank you. Uh, for those of you who thank are listening, you. just thank you for being a part of this podcast family. And our question of the week for next week is decently benign. But what are your top three favorite movies and why? We haven't talked about movies in a while. Steve's eyes just bugged out because I am i don't know how you're going to pick three is no, my guess. Right. But I do wow. want to hear them. Uh, and so we just would love to hear from you. You can email us at podcast at himhministries.com or uh, you can hit us up on the podcast episode page or just friend me anywhere on Twitter or Instagram or Facebook, whatever. Just hit me up and I'll, I'll, hear, I'll answer you. I do need to say, Matt, you made a call out recently for Cousin Moe's to write to us. And one of our friends posed as Cousin Moe's from The Office. You did. I think like, that was Steve, yeah, from the episode with Angela. wrote yeah. a comment with some of our friends out in on the yes. East side of the state they wrote like a note it was just hilarious i'll I'll send it to you so that's on our podcast episode page (laughs) on himhministries.com uh for those of you who listen and like what we do we just love for you to share this podcast review it on itunes um we just really appreciate and read them all and just for those of you who are wondering what we do at HIMH ministries a piece of it is equipping the church to walk well alongside our lgbt friends. And so we do some of this equipping and it's all under the gospel message. And so we really just want to teach just to take the beautiful theology and how can we walk next to our friends while holding to a historically Christian view. Um, We are going to link up to all the the Jay Stringer things. And so if you want to connect with him, again, go get his book. It's called Unwanted. So thanks again, Jay, for being a part of this. Thank you so much. And for all of us here at the Hole in My Heart podcast, we will see you next week. High five, buddy. That was pretty weak. Yeah, I was thinking the same thing. You want to give it another go? Yeah. That was better, but we can do better. You mean even better. Let's back on up and run at each other. Okay. Ready? Go! Ooh, it kind of stings. I like the pain. Let's do another one. Ready? Yeah! Yeah? I know how we can do the most ultimate high five ever! You've gone crazy mad with power lust. And I'm loving it! You ready to do this, dude? I've been ready this whole time, dude. Just waiting on you to say when you're- Super ultimate high five, go!